to the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'm Sonny Bunch, the culture editor at the Bulwark. Uh, joined today on the show by James Emanuel Shapiro, who has been an executive in the entertainment industry for 20 years, working in home video entertainment, exhibition festival programming, and in distribution. Uh, he most recently worked at the Alamo Draft House, where he started their analytics department and contributed to Alamo forming their internal booking department. James, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Uh, thanks for having me, Sonny. Uh, so I, uh, we, we, we've talked a bit in the past, uh, about, you know, booking movies for a chain like the Alamo and I find it all incredibly fascinating. Um, I, I just find the, the, the whole process really interesting here. And I think it's something people don't know a lot about, uh, especially kind of on the smaller, uh, the smaller chain end of things, the more kind of art house oriented end, right? Like everybody kind of understands that Tenet will be in 4,000 screens in a normal situation, right? Um, uh, you know, the new MCU movie is going to be in 4,000 screens. You go to the AMC or the Regal or whatever. Uh, but, but things are a little bit more curated at a place like the Alamo Draft House. Can you, can you uh, walk us through the process of figuring out what exactly a, a, a uh, again, a more curated experience uh, is like trying to trying to program that for a place like the Alamo. Um, uh, it, it's a great question. I mean, Alamo's business model is heavily predicated on being able to play a lot of different kinds of movies, and I mean, it, it starts with uh, you know the, the desire for the company to be a theater for movie lovers that's run by movie lovers that was built by a movie lover. So, you know, like people that don't just watch the movies that you're suggesting, the tenets and the marvels of the world, but are also interested in, you know, uh, high quality uh, movies that can even branch into some things as low demand as like foreign language documentaries. Um, so that that's you know a business strategy, um, and it's partly because uh, you're trying to cast as wide of a net as possible for your audience. You know, you if you play a lot of different kinds of movies, you're going to attract not just you know movie fans that like all those kinds of movies, but the specific niches inside of each one of those categories. But you're also paying less for those movies. So from a business standpoint, if you have a 200 seat theater and an 80 seat theater, uh, you would expect, you know, that you would make the most money if you're going to be playing the Marvel movie in the 200 seat theater. But the reality is if you're playing something like uh, parasite in the 200 seat theater, as long as you're selling both of them out and you're having an audience that you can cultivate, you know, that'll sell out a 200 seat theater, you're going to be paying less film rental on Parasite than you will be on the Marvel movie because Disney is going to be charging, you know, uh, a much higher film rental than the distributor for, you know, the more eclectic art house fare will be charging. So the theater is going to be able to keep more net revenue. So that ends up becoming like the biggest focus of your booking strategy is, uh, for the Regals and the AMCs and the Cinemarks of the world, you were just really focusing on demand. You know, how much demand does this movie have? And that's the movie that I'm going to put in the biggest theaters. But if you're Alamo, 
you're actually looking at the net revenue situation as opposed to the demand, which is a function of net because again, you still have to sell out the theater. Mm -hmm. But if you're only paying 50% of the ticket sale back to the distributor as opposed to 60, you know, 65% back to the distributor, you're, you're going to be making more money. Mm -hmm. And there, that Mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't, uh, don't understand that kind of uh, post ticket sale breakdown, right? That like the, it's, it's, it, it, the studio doesn't get a hundred percent of the ticket sale. The theater doesn't get a hundred percent of the ticket sale. It's, right. it's a, it's a negotiation back and forth. And one of the, one of the things that, that, uh, that kind of cropped up, uh, I think it was back when either the force awakens or the last Jedi was, was coming out, right. Was that Disney started kind of really ramping up the amount that they were taking from each, each ticket, which I, you know, I, I is is I would assume worse for a place like a Regal or an AMC than than an Alamo with the the breakdown that you just gave. Well, I mean, Disney operates a little bit differently, you know, than the other studios do, which is Disney tries to have one practice for everybody, uh, and I mean, the exhibition business is not a one size fits all, you know, model. I mean, every theater is going to have you know its own audience, so. Um, but what Disney has tried to do is they're gotten really good at making movies that are going to, you know, make the biggest audience as possible happy. So they feel like, you know, and this is largely true that movies like Star Wars and Marvel and Pixar are going to play really well in any theater, you know, across the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's just that high demand. Um, so when Star Wars came around, they saw the opportunity to, to raise their rates, you know, across the board for everybody. Uh, I would say that outside of Disney, that every single title to some degree is negotiable for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, depending on how much revenue you're going to be bringing to the table and how good of a negotiator you are, you can actually benefit from that strategy, because if you can provide a case where you're, you know, making more market share on a specific kind of movie or that you're bringing marketing to the table and Alamo is really good at both of those things, uh, you can actually negotiate lower rates. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, you, you mentioned creating the audience, and that's one thing that uh, the Draft House is kind of known for, uh, right, is is creating this community, this idea of you know where 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 you go if you want to if you're a movie lover looking to see um the movie how how when people think of movie marketing they think of you know endless tv ads they think of billboards right they don't necessarily think of that kind of community by community city by city theater by theater process uh how does how how exactly did alamo like go about you know I don't want to say revolutionizing, but, you know, really, you know, really emphasizing that, that, that portion of the, the, uh, capturing and creating that market. Uh, I mean, right from the very beginning, you know, like Tim has this, you know, like almost like a PT Barnum esque, you know, eventizing, you know, like sensibility, you know, like you're he built a single screen theater, uh, that was only going to be able to play, you know, repertory, you know, movies. So how do you compete, you know, with uh, first run movies in, in chain theaters in a, in a community where, you know, like th- there's going to be an art house audience in, in a lot of communities. But I mean, Austin wasn't exactly known at the time of being, 
you know, like a movie hub, um, you know, for art house kinds of films. So he had to eventize, you know, things. And part of it is the whole dine-in model. You know, I mean, that was a separation point. But, you know, to really celebrate these movies, he had to come up with ideas, you know, and, you know, really use, you know, work to try to build an audience. And, you know, the Alamo in Austin was successful pretty quickly, you know, because he was able to take a, like a, a movie like Dawn of the Dead and be like, all right, well, you can come to the movie, but you have to dress up as zombies. You know, it, it's something as simple as that. Mm-hmm. But everybody loves Dawn of the Dead. And especially if you love zombie movies, then this is the opportunity to really celebrate that movie. So it's an ex- extension of everything that Alamo has been over the, these decades, just over that one core idea, you know. I love period dramas. So how do you celebrate, you know, an audience that can love period dramas? Well, everybody can dress up that, um, you know, I mean, and, and Alamo does stuff like that. And also you have the dine-in model. So it's like, okay, uh, you know, like this movie is a celebration of food. So I'm going to incorporate that celebration and the guest is going to be able to participate in that celebration that's going on on screen. Uh, so everything that they do is just sort of an extension of that. What is the way that I can celebrate this audience in this movie? And, and the chains are just not going to do that, right? The chains are, you know, solely reliant on the, the demand of the movie again. You know, like if the movie is resonating with an audience, then they're just mainstream and they're going to, you know, be able to pull in a mainstream audience. But Alamo... um you know, has been able to cultivate specific audiences for very specific kinds of movies just because, you know, at the beginning, the people that were there loved these kinds of movies. And then it just became, well, just because we, you know, like, we're not specifically in love with this movie. I know how to get the audience that's in love with this movie to come see it here at Alamo. Uh, the... It, again, I'm, I'm like fascinated by this idea of finding the audience because you know, one of the things we had talked about uh, in one of our previous conversations was it's not, you know, you're, when you're programming a theater, it's not what do I like. It's not what movie do I personally enjoy or do I find interesting. It's what movie is there an audience for? Can we create an audience for? Um, uh, and I, I was I was hoping you could maybe walk us through some of the, the categories of things that you look for and that, and you know, that other, that other programmers look for uh, when they're trying to decide, okay, what is, what's, what's a movie? How can we, how can we make this movie fit into our categories of uh, people who come to the theater? Well, I mean, sometimes you can, I mean, sometimes there's just movies that, you know, defy, you know, the ability to do those things, but, you know, curation is, you know, uh, like in my mind, and I don't think that this is the consensus at Alamo about the definition of curation, but I, for me, curation is a double-edged sword. You know, it, it's beneficial, but it's also, it's harmful because, you know, curation relies on like a single person or a select group of people's opinion about, you know, a film and, um, you know, in some ways that that is what built Alamo, you know, this was Tim's curation and, and he was playing movies that he personally wanted to share with as many people as possible, but curation has to evolve, you know, if the company is going to evolve so that it becomes more audience evaluation. And, and I mean, that's something that I'm specifically really good at 
is being able to line movies up with other audiences because you can take one movie and find historically other movies that are a lot like that. And if you have the data that is able to break down what the audience for those movies historically was, then you're able to predict what the audience is going to be for movies going forward. Uh, so, you know, th there's ways to be able to do that, but again, it comes down to data collection or, or having access to data that, you know, did collect that information. Um, so, I mean, I'm not trying to suggest that curation is bad. I, I think curation is really good. You know, it's just you have to find an audience for your curation. And what I'm suggesting is that, you know, what's actually more effective is multiple, like, avenues of curation. That mm -hmm. you're able to find as many movies as possible that can, you can define that audience for that. And that requires a really diverse group of, you know, people that are evaluating these movies. Yeah, no, that makes that makes total mm -hmm. sense. You don't want just somebody coming to see the movies you like. You want to create, uh, you want to you want to throw that net as wide as possible. The the, I guess, uh, is there any is there any chance you could uh, give us a specific example of something that you looked at and you're like, okay, this works for this audience. Now maybe we we can bring this movie in and it would it would also work. Uh, you know, so data audience evaluation was something that we brought to the Alamo when we started the analytics department. Um, you know, it really became, uh, you know, for me, it's like, you know, you, you, you still want to use your guts, you know, like the data is not going to be driving all your decisions, but you want to be, you want to start the conversation with the data and you want the data to lead you most of the way there. So one of the things we started looking at is like, again, like audience polling, you know, like looking at the demographic breakdown of specific movies. And when I moved to the corporate office at, at Alamo, they had already started significant diversity initiatives. You know, that at, when I started there, the diversity initiatives were largely built around, um, uh, finding movies that would empower a female audience because the Alamo audience was, you know, about 52% of the tickets that were sold at Alamo were female. And there uh, was, you know, just an overall belief that Alamo had been curating mostly for men. Um, you know, so this was an opportunity, I think, for the people that worked there to really celebrate the fact that the most of the audience at Alamo was female and that if you celebrated, you know, they were already playing movies that were going to play really well to women, but being able to celebrate them and market them directly to women was a way to sort of empower that entire dynamic. Um, but the diverse, when I got there, I wanted to expand the way that Alamo was looking at diversity. And, you know, the, the, the problem was there was not a ton of diversity among the you know, the, the creative team. Um, so there was just this belief, well, we can't pick movies for, uh, you know, Hispanic audiences because we don't have, you know, a Hispanic that's, you know, on board that's sort of targeting these movies for us. But if you could look at the historical data, you can see which movies play over index with, you know, Hispanic audiences and, you know, African-American audiences. And so, you know, I remember the movie The Nun, um, you know, which is, you know, this Blumhouse, mm. you know, 
part of the Conjuring universe. Uh, but if you look at the historical data, you can see that a lot of horror movies um, play and skew ethnic. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, when I say ethnic, I'm not, you know, trying to minimize that. Uh, you know, like an audience outside of Caucasians is what I'm referring to when I say ethnic. Sure. Sure. And, um, you know, if the majority of the people that are going to see a movie like The Nun... Uh, are African-American or Hispanic or just non-Caucasian, then that becomes a diversity target. You know, like we can try to grow the Alamo audience if we are marketing these movies directly at or trying to celebrate the fact that this is the predominant audience for these movies. So like The Nun is a really good example, of, I think, of what you're asking about is like how you can take data and how you can take like curation and sort of evolve it into what I'm calling like audience evaluation. Mm -hmm. Um, And now all of a sudden, like we can over index or we can do better than we had in the past on something like the nun, because we've identified that, you know, there's a specific audience for something like the nun that we're not like doing a direct outreach for. And, and I think you've actually seen, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I, I think certainly over the last four or five years you've seen uh studios themselves focusing more on um particularly the hispanic audience with horror movies i like right. uh, the the curse of la llorona right. there was the the uh, one of the paranormal activity movies was essentially marketed as kind of almost a, a hispanic spin on it um which which you know uh i even remember there the 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 last rambo movie they showed one of the trailers in in spanish in the like the the just normal movie I had I had gone to see, which was, um, which I think is really interesting. I mean, it's it's a really it's it's they're out there trying to capture a large and and uh, uh, fairly underrepresented um, market. Uh, and obviously in Texas, this is a big thing. I mean, Texas being, you know, a, a border state that has a large Hispanic population. Sure, um, it feels like a underutilized. Uh, audience well i mean i think the studios by and large have realized that the exhibition industry and the mpaa puts out this survey at the end of every year and in 2019 you know their evaluation of 2018's theatrical audience is that it was quote-unquote mature um you know that we are at a saturation point that we're not growing the theatrical business in this country um so I think for the studios, the challenge then just becomes, you know, like, how do you maximize the audience that you currently have available to you? And, you know, you can look at these data points and the first thing that pops out is that the Hispanic audience is probably the largest over-indexing, you know, meaning if they, you know, are 14% of the U.S. population, and I'm not exactly sure what the number is off the top mm-hmm. of my head, maybe it's 18, mm-hmm. but... But if they represent 20% of the movie population, then you're like, there's an opportunity there. So if you are making content that, you know, if you're getting, going back and looking at these movies historically and saying, um, you know, like this movie is over-indexed for Hispanic audiences and stuff like Paranormal Activity was, you know, then you can start, uh, you know, growing that audience or, you know, reaching out more directly to that audience and, and again, empowering that audience and, and trying to, you know, get them to the theater and to your movies as much as possible. I mean, I think the thing that the studios, you know, and just the industry in general is still struggling with is that 
the people making these decisions and the people making these movies are still largely Caucasian. And, you know, we are seeing um, somewhat of a, you know, directional adjustment in that space. And I mean, I think with everything that's going on in the world today, that's only going to increase. But, you know, it, it's not like Hollywood doesn't want to, in, you know, doesn't want to uh, make movies for the African-American or, you know, the ethnic population. They're just making these movies based on movies that they've made in the past that have, you know, drawn, you know, over, over index for those audiences, but something like, you know, black Panther and, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, crazy rich Asians, you're starting to see that if the, you know, the, that population itself are the ones making the movies, then you can even grow the audience even more because those movies become cultural events. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not suggesting you can, always make a cultural event but like once you've made that event you've kind of like opened that box to the point where people who never go to the theater are now going to the theater uh and that's what you would see with something like you know black panther or crazy rich mm -hmm. asians uh you know looking specifically at the the draft house you mentioned that the dine-in uh factor was a differentiating um uh you know plus for the for the chain is when you're looking at the analytics, and this is something I've always been curious about. I I, I don't know the answers, but when you're looking at the analytics, do you do you see a difference in audiences that are likely to purchase food yeah. and drink and yeah. and not? And do you weigh that when you're uh, making absolutely. a decision on what to? It's it's funny for me. We're talking about these things in the present tense, but for me, it's really in the past. I, mean, <laughs> I don't work there anymore. But I mean, it's um, uh, yeah. I mean, like, look if. The Alamo model works because of the food and beverage. I mean, you, you know, like, it's no secret that concessions is what's driving the industry. And that's why concession prices are so high, you know, is because the margins are so good and the margins are so bad when it comes to the movies, because you're giving so much of your, you know, return back to the, to the distributor. But, uh, so for Alamo, you know, concessions is, you know, like more than half their business. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, if you are making or if you're playing movies or you're celebrating those movies in a specific way that engage an audience that has a higher uh, per capita, you know, meaning that they're, uh, you know, they're, they're buying more concessions, then you're going to want to play more of those movies, right? Because your overall profit and your overall margins are growing. So, um, I mean, we... You know, the Alamo was not just uh, programming movies, you know, for audience evaluation, but like you're suggesting it's, oh, you know, like Mamma Mia, like we, we saw with the first one, like, you know, they consumed a ton of alcohol during that movie, you know, because it was like a girls night out type situation. Um, so we know that when we're playing the second one, you know, we're going to be, you know, we want to build cocktails around that because we know we're going to... Uh, you know, sell a, a, a ton of alcohol. And I mean, and that comes true. Um, the opposite's true for family and kids titles, you know, like, you know, Alamo for a while really struggled with, um, you know, playing those kinds of movies. And in my tenure there, they got increasingly better because they really had stepped up the marketing towards it. But they also had built menus around being specific for those types of movies. But by in general, by and large, like most kids' movies, most family movies, you know, your 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 F and B, your food and beverage numbers are going to be a lot smaller. But that mm -hmm. doesn't prevent 
Alamo from still wanting to play, you know, like Finding Nemo. It just means that, you know, you just have an expectation that, you know, you're going to get less food and beverage. Sure, sure. Do you uh, do you find that audiences now are more into studio labels than they had been in the past? Like, I feel I feel like. You know, back in the, I, I feel like when I was growing up watching movies, Paramount, Warner Brothers, whatever, they were all more or less in, interchangeable. Um, and, and now, you with the rise of like A twenty four or Neon, etc., is is there a uh, is, is there a greater emphasis, a greater draw um, that those uh, kind of smaller but 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 kind of cult cult like following uh, studios? Uh, bring bring to the theater. I mean, I, I think the Alamo audience probably recognizes A twenty four and Neon better than the AMC audience. Um, but having said that, I still think it's pretty small. Like, mm-hmm. I think you know, distributors are are you know are still haven't built a brand that has the sort of loyalty that you would see, um, you know, outside of like extremely niche Sinise audiences, Mm -hmm. you know, that Alamo does drag in, but um, like, I think by and large, the average Alamo movie customer still won't know what a 24 is. I mean, I think outside of, you know, Disney that that's it, you know, like they're, they're, you know, understanding of, you know, brands, you know, is just uh, Disney and that's it. Oh, that's interesting. That's I mean, interesting. I, has it gotten better? Has it gotten bigger? Maybe. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, like my own, like we never really tracked that. And, you know, the services that do, they do ask that question, why do you go see this movie? You know, and, and one of them is the distributor is a possible response. But you're, you're asking mainstream audiences and not, we, we never really did any polling directly for the Alamo audience, which we wanted to do. We just you know, we're still building it, um, you know, before COVID happened, but like, you're looking at things from a, you know, 30,000 foot level when you're looking at the audience polling that happens nationally. And they're not really recognizing that, you know, like eighth grade is an A24 movie, you know, sure. or like Midsummer is an A24 movie. Um, I mean, I think that there's some recognition with some mainstream audience, you know, horror audience now that, you know, like it used to be that you couldn't really platform up genre movies, you know, that movies like Midsummer or Hereditary, you know, or Ex Machina, you know, like that was, those were just going to be art house, you know, movies. And you, you've been able to expand that, you know, like paranormal activity was like an initial example of this that started really small, you know, but had huge per screen releases and ended up becoming a national release. But like Ex Machina, you know, had the same sort of path and, um, you know, it follows, you know, did the same thing. It exploded in its first weekend and then got a national release. And, you know, a 24 is really dived in with that model with, you know, the midsummers of the world. But so I think that that audience is recognizing that, you know, like it's not necessarily an a 24 film, but it's one of those kinds of horror movies for that audience. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like I can define, you know, those kinds of movies in terms that most people don't like using, you know, like elevated horror or elevated (laughs) genre, Um, you know, but there is a difference in the way that the audience 
interacts with movies like Midsummer than they interact with a movie like, you know, The Conjuring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that is uh, that. Uh, I. this is also probably a function of just being too online uh, on my part is, you know, like everyone's like, Oh, the new way 24 movie. Right. Like, okay. Yeah. I I mean, like, look, I, I I live in my own echo chamber as well, you know, but I mean like that's the, the, the the difference is I think you can recognize the fact that you live in an echo chamber. Um, And so, you know, for Alamo, Alamo existed in its own echo chamber as well. And so there's a, a struggle sometimes with trying to understand, you know, what the actual demand of movies are. Um, but, you know, Alamo can do really well with movies that don't do really well nationally, but the individual echo chambers sometimes still outweigh, you know, the, the data, you know, or the decision-making process, you know, where it's like, I like this actor or I like this director and, you know, you can still lean on it that way. You know, it's just a constant struggle, you know, and I, I don't think Alamo is the only one that struggles with this. But again, like once you're aware of it, you know, then you can kind of, you know, work yourself around it. And I mean, our, our systems were never super sophisticated to the point where we could rely solely on data, uh, you know, like to make a lot of the programming decisions, you know, it it still was like, let the data lead us down a path and then let our gut sort of make the final decisions. Sure. Sure. Uh, the, you know, we, we do live in now kind of this post COVID world or still, I guess like COVID concurrent world. It's still, it's still going on. Um, uh, what do you, what do you see as the, as the like short term future for exhibition? I mean, I like, I, I myself, I went to see Unhinged at the Draft House when it came out, and mm-hmm. I, it was, it was a weird experience. It was just, it was kind of weird um, compared to, to to how it used to be. Uh, so I, I am, I'm curious what you, what you kind of make of the the current situation and the situation going forward. Does it just kind of depend on what Tenet does in a couple of weeks, or are we, uh, are we, are we settling in on something a little more concrete? Um, I mean, if I really knew the answer to that, then I should be, you know, <laughs> running a studio. Best um, guess. That's right. all. That's all. Yeah. Uh, no podcast is any, any better than best guess. Right. So. Right. I just wanted to preface that by saying, <laughs> you know, you know, I, I'm a big fan of William Goldman's nobody knows anything. And sure. Um, you know, the, 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 the COVID world is largely reinforced that the only certainty is uncertainty. Um, you know, I mean, after COVID, there's not a ton of studio. Pro- I mean, after Tenet, there's not a ton of studio product, right? There's Wonder Woman and, you know, there's some movies that are, you know, set up for, you know, winter, you know, like Dune and, and Coming to America too, and stuff like that are still on the schedule. But like, there's still, you know, Tenet can come out and it can, you know, roll up to $100 million over 12 weeks or $200 million over 12 weeks. And there's still, like, I don't know what happens after that. Like, you know, if it's largely successful, can you move a bunch of product back into this year? Probably not. Um, You know, so, I mean, I still think we have to wait until 2021 to really know, like, what what we expect to see with audiences in in a COVID world. And I think, you know, 
it's hard for me to imagine that the theatrical experience is going to go away. I think it's just going to be consolidated. Um, and it, it probably should have been consolidated, in my opinion, before COVID. You know, like if you would look at the biggest performing titles, you know, like one third of the theaters were generating, you know, two thirds of the revenue. Mm-hmm. So you, you have a situation where you're really top heavy. And you're also top heavy with content. Like, you know, most of the movies that are in the top 25 are generating, you know, like most of the revenue for the whole year. Um, you know, so I, I think COVID is just going to make things even more top heavy. Uh, you know, there's going to be less product from studios and they're going to focus even more on IP and take less chances with original content. And, you know, I, I think they're going, you know, I, I I, I say this and it's a rather unpopular thing to say, but I do think studios have gotten really good at finding the movies that the most amount of people want to watch, you know, and they're definitely putting all their eggs in that basket. And I know that there's, you know, frustration about that, you know, and I, I feel it as a consumer as well. I want, you know, really, you know, uh, an eclectic group of movies available to me, but you know, I, I do think that there's reasons why studios have gotten out of, you know, the genres, you know, where the audience, you know, that are not showing up to the theaters in the, in a reliant way. Um, so I only think that COVID's going to increase that because there's just going to be less risk taking, um, you know, in, in trying to ensure that the audiences that are going to go are going to have, you know, the, the highest demand movies available. Um, you know, the numbers that, you know, we were looking at, you know, for unhinged, you know, like it's all, it's kind of impossible even really to say if it's good or bad. Like it, yeah. it did a little bit better than I think people expected. Um, mm-hmm. so that's a good sign, but you're also looking at the most, of the top theaters for it were drive-ins. Um, right. you know, so it's like, if you subtract that out, then, you know, you're, you're back with what you would kind of expect on hinge to do. And then, yeah. you know, there, there's, you know, limited capacity going on and, you know, there's a great deal of the audience that's not going to come now because of COVID. And, um, but on the flip side, unhinge had the whole market to itself, basically, you know, like it was like the new movie, you know, and there hasn't been a new movie in six months. So like, you know, a lot of people just who wanted to go back to the movies just want to see it. So it's impossible right. really to gauge, how unhinged did. And I think it's going to be really impossible to gauge, you know, how tenant did, you know, like Warner probably has some expectations that they've set, you know, for what they, you know, are doing, but they're not the expectations that they had before. Like at this point, they're trying to figure out how to release these movies and what's the less amount of movie, the money they can lose and not Mm -hmm. the most amount they can make. It's the opposite. So, right. Um, I, you know, Tenet is not going to provide all the answers is I think the best thing to say now. And I don't think the best answers are going to happen until 2021. And I think NATO and the large theater chains have basically communicated that they don't anticipate movie going to return to pre COVID levels until 2022. Uh, so you know, that's basically where my head is at. You know, I, I don't see any reason to disagree with that. You know, I think 
the more important questions for the industry come down at this point. You know, like if we're not going to find the answers now in distribution, but I do think you can find the answers now in production. And that's like this giant unknown as well. It's like, how do these movies get made, right. you know, during COVID? Um, you know, like everything's been on hold and now production is starting to unfreeze and things are starting to come back to normal, especially internationally. But, you know, they're going forward without insurance, you know, and are they really taking social distancing measures into effect on set? You know, like, are they really cleaning, like, to the level that they probably should be cleaning? I mean, I don't know. You know, like, we, this is just going to be a giant learning experience. And I actually think that that's, like, you know, things that need to get settled now more than the distribution angle to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, on that cheery note, uh, well, is there anything else that you think people should, like, if you were if you were talking to somebody who knew nothing about uh, exhibition and and the the what theaters like actually do when they're trying to figure out what to play, what would you, what would you tell them? Is there anything else that you would just be like, hey, here's a thing to keep in mind. Here's a fun fact. I mean, the stuff that I find really fascinating is you know like with all our dependence on superhero films and Star Wars and that kind of stuff, it's fans really like the quote unquote fanboy audience does not make up you know, like they're, they're the ones that are driving the success for some of these titles, but they're not the reason that these titles are successful. Like in order for Star Wars to do, you know, a billion dollars internationally, it has to draw in a mainstream audience. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you look at the exit poll data, when people select, you know, I am a fan of this brand or I am a fan of this series, those numbers are around 40%. So when you go to see Star Wars, only 40% of the audience is quote unquote, a Star Wars fanboy or fangirl. Um, and I mean, I think that that's something that most people don't realize is that the success for those movies is still being driven by drawing in an audience that doesn't go to the theater 12 times a year, you know, or mm -hmm. once a month. Um, and so when you see something like Solo, you know, and like you, you hear these conversations that Solo didn't work for the fans. Well, I think the truth of that actually is, is Solo didn't work for a mainstream audience. You know, the only people that kind of saw Solo were the Star Wars fans. Sure. And the reason why Solo didn't generate a billion dollars worldwide is because it didn't resonate with a mainstream audience. You know, oversaturation of Star Wars movies the fact that the character that a mainstream audience most identifies with Harrison Ford was Harrison Ford wasn't in this movie, you know, like these are the things that actually drive success on our biggest movies. Uh, and so there seems in my mind, I think people have a misconception about like movies like Batman, you know, or, you know, Marvel or anything like that, that they're making these decisions largely based on, the quote unquote fanboy or the fangirl, you know, expectations of the movies. But in reality, I think they're trying to make these decisions on how can I get a person who's only going to the movie theater once or twice a year to go see this movie? Mm -hmm. You know, like it's got to be a big enough event for them to go see this specific movie. And that's the challenge, you know, and it is less about what I think fanboys and fangirls want and more about 
you know, like trying to make your audience, the, the movie is appealing to as wide an audience as possible. Great. Uh, well, thank you very much for joining us, James. Uh, uh, I, I, again, I find this conversation so interesting. I hope everybody else does too. Uh, uh, and if you uh, have any questions for me, listeners, just shoot me a message on Twitter. I'm at Sunny Bunch or, uh, you know, where, wherever else. Uh, and I will be happy to see if I can get them answered for you. Um, thanks again for joining us. I'll be back next week on The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Mm-hmm.